Amen. What a glorious hope it is that we have in Christ. We truly have been blessed through Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and even, yes, for this life on earth. If you have a Bible, open with me, please, to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. We come to the section for this week and, Lord willing, again next week where Really, we can't make a whole lot more progress than a couple verses. Peter writes a couple short paragraphs here, and there's just so much truth that we're going to take two verses this week, and again next week, Lord willing, another two verses. So this morning, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, and the, the title of the message, kind of the, the sum of this short paragraph, is the call to the believers to proclaim the excellencies of of Christ. As those redeemed by God through the grace of Christ, there is no greater purpose in our lives than to proclaim the good news of Christ and to do that to the honor and the glory of the Lord. For our author here, Peter, an apostle who was redeemed, knew this great grace of God of the Lord. Because of his great fall into sin, he knew this purpose deeply. He had been redeemed from much, and so he was overwhelmed with this call on his life, the call that's on the life of every believer to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And so as we look at this text, Peter is going to tell us how to proclaim, what to proclaim, and why we proclaim that. So with that, let's turn our attention to the text. I'll ask that you stand with me as we show honor and reverence to the reading of Holy Scripture. And we will read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is the word of the living God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated, and as you're doing so, I ask that you bow with me as we go before the Lord's throne of grace in prayer. Father, what a great mercy it is that we know in Christ. For we, Lord, who were once not a people, are now your people. People redeemed from all kinds of sin, redeemed from so much wickedness. We were wandering like sheep without a shepherd, but you have called us out. You have set us apart. You have showed us a great eternal mercy and loving kindness through the amazing and finished work of Christ at the cross. 
Lord, for all of these mercies that you have shown us, what can we do but proclaim the excellencies of Christ? Lord, would that be our all-consuming passion? Would that be the, the thing that drives us from day to day to day through the rest of our lives to make Christ known and to live lives that make much of our Savior? Lord, as we come to sit under the authority of your word, I ask that your spirit would move in us ask that you would help us to put away distractions, Lord, to, to just focus our attention, our minds and our hearts on the glorious truths that are before us in your word today. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready and eager to receive, respond to, and apply the truth. Lord, by your word, we pray and we ask and we hope that through the powerful working of your spirit, you would conform us to Christ. Lord, would you form Christ in us, growing us up to a mature man, to that which shows the fullness of the stature of Christ. May we not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but may we stand firmly upon the truth. Lord, would you show us Christ? Would you show us our sin? Would you humble us and break us? Lord, would you grant us repentance? Would you send your spirit to put strength in our stride, give us grace for our hurdles, and cause us to run with faith? with our eyes set on the prize, looking toward the upward call of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, he must increase and we must decrease. We pray that you would accomplish that work and that purpose in us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, this is a topic that should bring the Christian much joy. To proclaim the excellencies of Christ is the pinnacle of the Christian life, both here in the present and in eternity. When we go to be with Christ, all that we do centers and focuses on this great duty this great pleasure of proclaiming the greatness and the glory of the Savior that has called us from darkness to his marvelous light. If you're familiar with the Baptist Catechism and the Westminster Catechism, you know what that first question is. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God forever and to enjoy God forever, the present life and the life to come. So proclaiming the excellencies of Christ is an eternal action. It is an eternal 
duty. It is something that the Lord in his kindness and his grace allows us to participate in with veiled eyes, with dull minds, but in some glorious and mysterious way in the present life, preparing us for the life to come for those who are in Christ where we will worship at his throne forever and ever. This is the pinnacle of the Christian life. So as we look at this, let's think about the context. Um, this passage in 1 Peter 2 is kind of a longer passage. We could drop back to verse 4 where we began last week, where we saw that Christ is set apart as the precious cornerstone of the church. He is the cornerstone of the church, the foundation of our faith. He is the one who shed his precious blood on the cross that we might be redeemed from our sin, that we might be built up as living stones to become a spiritual household for a holy priesthood to offer up our lives as spiritual sacrifices, pleasing and holy and acceptable unto the Lord only because of the work of Christ. This is who our Savior is, and there are those who reject Christ. There are those who stumble over him. There are those who are scandalized by his great sacrificial love who look at him as though he is a stumbling block and reject him. The power of Christ is foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are being saved, that glorious cross where we see the power of Christ, that is the power and the mercy and the wisdom and the grace of God on display. It is a sad and a wretched state for men to be cut off from God and to reject and to stumble over Christ. But there are many who are on that broad path and who will enter through that wide gate. But likewise, there are those who by God's grace see Christ as choice and precious. Those that see Christ as choice and precious are the saints of God. And this here is a gathering of the saints of God. So let's consider this choice and precious Savior. We come to him as to a living stone. We are marked out by him. We are set apart by him. We are given these great graces from him for a specific purpose so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So as we consider the text before us, we see that we are chosen and we are set apart we are possessed by God and given mercy through the work of Christ. And this is a glorious, glorious position. But there is a responding duty to that glorious position. Our sole responding duty is to proclaim the glory and the excellency of that Savior. So we must see this glorious position that we have in Christ. But we must not just see and revel in that position. We must respond. The life of the believer is a response to the glories of Christ. Peter outlines for us the position of the redeemed. He outlines for us the proclamation of the redeemed and the persuasion of the redeemed. Why do we proclaim the excellencies of Christ? We must remember here that Peter's whole intent in this letter is to build up a suffering church, the saints that are scattered abroad, who are suffering persecution, who are going through all kinds of various trials. And Peter's 
whole goal is to build them up and to encourage them in the great hope that they have in Christ. But he also exhorts. We must always remember that as we walk through trials and suffering, that yes, there is great encouragement in Christ, but our trials and our suffering also serve to exhort us, to press us on, to wean us off the cares of the world, and to show us the glorious hope that is to come. So let us hear this passage today as an exhortation. Dear friends, may we see the glory of Christ, but may we be called to respond. May we be called to respond. So let's begin at verse 9, the first half of that verse, and consider the position of the redeemed. The position of the redeemed. Verse 9, the first half, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Now, we could read that and almost think that Peter's just stacking blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing for the sake of emphasis, to show us the glorious work that the Lord has done in and through us through the work of Christ, and we would be right. That is blessing on top of blessing four times over in the position that we have in Christ. But we can also look at these phrases, these standings before the Lord individually and see both specific blessing in that standing and also specific application. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to break these apart and consider our position before Christ. Peter begins by saying that you are a chosen race. A chosen race. The word race is the Greek word genos, and it can have several different uses in the um, scriptures. It can mean generation or a kind or a species, or even a family, or a race, or a nation. So it's a broad term, and one definition I think is helpful in this context is that we are, this speaks of a collective of many individuals of the same nature or the same sort. So just like if you were to think about the idea of ethnicities, something that would be kind of a, a similar term, you, you see people groups, people that are of a similar nation. They speak of the same tongue. Their skin might be the same color. They live in the same area of the world. That's what we're talking about. We are a chosen people who are set apart to have a like nature. We are of a like sort. We are the people and the family of God set apart by God to be his people. Isaiah 43, verse 21 says, this is the Lord speaking, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. That is what we are, the people formed by God for himself. We, we are similar. We are like to one another. Just like the people of Israel. They were, the Lord could have set apart any people. He could have chosen someone other than Abraham, but he chose Abraham. He chose the people of Israel and set them apart to be his people. They were one people group set apart and chosen by God. We are a chosen race, a chosen people. So how do we respond to that? When, when we think about this, the question is, so what? What do we do with this fact that we are a chosen race? race. How do we respond to God's gracious election? 
And I think the first response to that is to have a heart of humbled worship. A heart of humbled worship to the Lord because you were chosen not on the basis of anything that you did to merit or to earn or to deserve God's favor. You were a sinner by nature, at war and at enmity with the Lord, and yet he, in eternity past, places his glorious love and affection upon you, sets you apart so that he might save you to be part of his chosen race. Such goodness and such grace is worthy of worship. It's worthy of praise. It's worthy of devotion. And all of that should, should flow out of a humbled heart because we see that we are so unworthy There's nothing in us to deserve God's favor. And yet in his kindness, he gives us his grace. He placed his love upon us so that he could redeem us, to call us out of sin, to be his people. Matthew Henry made a helpful observation here. He wrote that Christians make up one family. They're a species of people distinct from the common world. They are of another spirit, another principle, another practice, which they could never be if they were not chosen in Christ and sanctified by his spirit. We are distinct from the world. That is why we are that chosen race, because we are closed off from the rest of the world. We are distinct and set apart by God to sanctify us by the work of his spirit. We will get to this further in a moment, considering the idea that we are a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. But we must understand that we are chosen by God so that we will be sanctified by his spirit. So how do we respond to this choosing this election of God, we respond by allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work, to do that work of sanctification, of causing us to hate our sin, to repent of our sin, and to be conformed to Christ. If you are chosen by God, put away sin, cut off the armor of the flesh, repent of your sin, and walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So you're a chosen race. Peter then continues on, you're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. If you will, turn back to Exodus chapter 19 with me. Exodus chapter 19. I want you to to see something here as we can kind of compare, maybe not compare and contrast, but we can compare the old covenant to the new covenant, the, the old covenant position and the new covenant position. Exodus 19, uh, verses 5 and 6. This is the Lord speaking to Moses, telling Moses what to tell the people of Israel. Exodus 19, verse 5. It said, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what we must see here is that when the Lord promised to Israel 
that they would be a kingdom of priests. They would be a kingdom that was led by priests. That was the old covenant of the Lord, is that they would be under this covenant where they sacrificed, where they were led in worship and in spiritual life by priests. And the Lord says, if you will keep my covenant, if you will obey my commands, then you will be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom who are led by priests. But then what does Peter, what does the Lord through Peter say to us in 1 Peter chapter 2? He says that you will be, you are a royal priesthood. You're not a people under the priesthood, but you yourselves are part of the priesthood. Under the old covenant, you came to God through the priest. You did not have direct access to the Father. In the new covenant, we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus Christ. He is at the right hand of the Father. And through Christ, we have direct access to the throne of grace. Time doesn't really allow us to go into all the depths of what that means, but just hear me to say that that is a glorious position that we who are in Christ in the new covenant know by the grace of God. We have direct access. This, this phrase could literally be translated that we are priests in the royal house of God. We are those who are the attendant priest in the house of and the family, and the church of the living God. We are those who serve under the great high priest, again, who is Jesus Christ. In Revelation 20, verse 6, the Lord says that they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The priest of Christ will reign with God for that thousand years. That is a rule and a reign and authority that we can't fully understand and comprehend, but in Christ we have this great blessing of authority and of being a priesthood that will be realized in the life to come. But as a priesthood, what does that mean about our lives? The priests were consecrated unto the Lord. They were set apart. They were made holy. They were given very specific and strict standards to follow to remain an acceptable and holy priesthood to the Lord. Now, praise God that the work of salvation is finished and complete in Christ. There's nothing that we can add. There's nothing that we can do to earn more favor or to earn any favor or to merit our salvation. That work is done and complete. But clearly we see that there is a transformation of life that comes when you put faith saving faith in Christ. You become a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood who is consecrated unto God. Think about the passage we looked at last week. We are built into a spiritual household for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved to that end, to see that progression through to its completion that we give of our lives as living sacrifices unto Christ. So we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. Then Peter also says that we are a holy nation. We're a holy nation. Now consider, um, there, we could draw this back to Deuteronomy verse, chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. 
There the Lord says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are a holy people unto your God. You are a set-apart people unto your God. The Lord has made you holy by that work of Christ, but then you are to walk in that position. And Peter's just stacking blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing. This is almost, you almost get the feel of, of a doxology here, where you're just stacking truth on top of truth on top of truth, all to the praise of God. And that should be a primary response of the blessings that we know in Christ, is that we praise and worship the Lord. What else should mark the holy nation? What, what should describe us as those who are holy and set apart unto God? In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 2, we see a, a similar idea that I think we can draw application from. This is the people of Israel singing a song of victory, and they say, Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. Righteousness and holiness are obviously closely linked ideas. Open the gates that the righteous nation may come in. That one who is righteous is the one who remains faithful. So as a holy nation, as a holy people marked out and set apart by God, what should be our response? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Enduring faithfulness. An enduring standing firm and standing faithfully upon the word and the truth of God. We are a holy nation set apart by a God who is faithful to us. And if God is faithful to us, why would he ask or require anything less than faithfulness from us in return? We must be faithful faithful to obey, faithful to remain, faithful, as we'll see in a moment, to proclaim the glory of Christ. So we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and finally in verse 9, a people for God's own possession. We're purchased and possessed by God. Again, we can go back to the Old Testament to see where Peter is drawing these truths from. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy 4 verse 20. says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his possession as today. He has brought you out of the iron furnace as from Egypt to be a people for his possession. We, like Israel, have been brought out from slavery. Israel was brought out from slavery in Egypt. We, as God's people, have been brought out from slavery to sin. Dear friends, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt by his almighty power, but not only did he bring us out of slavery to sin by his almighty power, but he bought us out from under the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So you have been brought out of slavery and you have been bought out from slavery. The ransom has been paid. The blood of Christ is sufficient. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. He bought us out. He redeemed us from every lawless deed to be his possession so that we would be zealous for good deeds. Those good deeds don't save us, but we are saved so that in order to become zealous for good deeds. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So it's all for God's glory. But we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus so that we will walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The Lord prepared them. The Lord ordained them. The Lord, by his grace, brought us to life. But then we walk in those good works. We are zealous for good deeds. We are zealous, dear friends, to not sin. Again, consider this. We are bought by the blood of Christ to be God's possession, to be the bride of Christ. Therefore, we should not treat with contempt or not treat with great reverence and preciousness that blood that was paid for our redemption. So really, to sum up the idea of the position of the redeemed, really all we must think about is the fact that we are indeed redeemed. We're purchased by the blood of Christ to become the bride of Christ. Christ purchased us with his blood. He washes us. He sanctifies us with and through the word so that he might present us to himself, his bride, the church is being spotless and blameless with no wrinkle, with no stain, without any contaminants. That is the position of the redeemed, that we are bought by the blood of Christ. We must live holy, set-apart lives to be faithful to that great bridegroom who saves us. So that is the position of the redeemed. Let's move on in verse 9 and also see the proclamation of the redeemed. The proclamation of the redeemed. We have all these things, verse 9 continues, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now right off the bat, we must see that this is absolutely a vocal proclamation, is a clear and visible proclamation. The word for proclaim is the word ex angelo. Ex angelo. Angelo means to proclaim and ex means out. So it is a proclaiming out. It is a publishing completely and fully and clearly of a specific message. It is not that you preach the gospel with your life and then if necessary use words. It is that you preach the gospel verbally and then let your life back up and validate that proclamation. 
It's a proclamation that is clear and unmistakable. Now, we can press on a little bit deeper into some kind of general application, and then we'll come back and look at this idea as well of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ through that work where he called us from darkness into light. This proclamation must be clear and full and complete. And friends, as you know, there are so many in our day who will not proclaim God's truth and will not proclaim God's gospel in that clear type of way. They fear men. They want to be liked or highly esteemed by men. They are unwilling to be thought of as fools by the world. And so they tweak, they pervert, they soften, or they water down the message of the gospel. But dear friends, our command is to proclaim the fullness of the counsel of God, to proclaim the faith that has been handed down through the saints, through the ages, that is in accordance with the truth of God's word. When you hear of a new or an uncommon take on the gospel, when you hear a new take on what the gospel is or what it should look like in your life or how you should live it out, if it's a, a new take, if it's something that has not been handed down from the saints throughout the ages, dear friends, we should look at that with, with a little concern. You don't know that we can outright say that we should reject it immediately, but we should be like the Bereans and test whether or not what is being said is true and right and in accordance with the Scriptures. We should identify that which is new teaching and test it and validate it or invalidate it in accordance with the Scriptures. Jude verse 3 says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The Word of God is handed down to the saints so that we contend earnestly for it and stand firmly and only upon it. This is the Word that we proclaim in clarity and in its entirety. So again, that's general application of proclaiming God's truth. But Peter gets real specific here, I think. So let's look at that. He says, we are set apart by God so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? Give you a couple definitions. Vine's Dictionary describes this excellencies, the idea of excellencies as the intrinsic eminence of something the intrinsic eminence of Christ. Thayer's Dictionary would say that Christ's excellencies point to those things which shine forth in our calling and in the whole work of our salvation. When we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, we're proclaiming his work in salvation. We proclaim the fundamental and essential glories that Christ knows in the work that he did to redeem us from the power of sin and Satan to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's this sense, I think, as we see throughout Peter's epistle, where we see the, the excellency of Christ in the preciousness of his sacrifice to the Father. 
Consider that all sin for every elect saint of God had to be paid for. If the Lord is going to be just, sin has to be paid. That price will be called in. And we see the excellency of Christ in that he, one man, was able to bear every ounce of punishment, every ounce of the wrath of God against every saint the Lord would ever call to himself was laid upon Christ at the cross. That blood is sufficient. And in that sacrifice, we see the excellency of Christ. And that is the excellency of Christ that we proclaim. That he is so perfect. That he is so righteous. That he is so glorious. That his sacrifice was enough. That is proclaiming the excellency of Christ to say he was so pleasing to God that the Lord was able to lay upon him the iniquity of us all and count those of us in Christ then to be justified and forgiven, to say that that price has been paid. Dear friends, see the value of Christ. See his excellency, his beauty, his glory, his fulfilling of all that the Father required. See that and proclaim it. Don't hold it in. Don't keep it to yourself. This glory that we proclaim is certainly proclaimed with our mouths. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The very term for proclaim is a, is a speaking forth. But Calvin also would point out here that it behooves us to declare these virtues or excellencies not only by our tongue, but also with our whole life. Again, as I said earlier, we validate our proclamation of the gospel of Christ by living a transformed life. So ask yourself the question, do I declare that I'm delivered from the power of darkness to God's marvelous light by the way that I live? Does your life show that you are redeemed? Does your life, does the manner in which you live and follow and order the course of your life, does it highlight the great price that was paid for your redemption? Do you profane the blood of the covenant by running off in unrepentant sin without a second thought toward repentance and a second thought towards changing your life by the grace of God? Or do you sin and understand that even one breaking of the law is as though you break and shatter the entire law and that sin had to be paid for? Live your life in such a way as to properly or uh, adorn the gospel that you proclaim. Now, as we think about this, I was thinking yesterday and last night just about this idea of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in the age in which we live. There's so much noise. There's so much just utter chaos and outright garbage being discussed and debated and argued about. Dear friends, we must be about proclaiming the glory of Christ. We must not get caught up in argument 
and debate and all of the division that is creeping into those who call themselves the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we contend. We've already said that. We contend earnestly for the truth. But as we contend earnestly for the truth, don't get caught up in those wars and those arguments. Proclaim Christ. If you enter an argument, and sometimes it is necessary to enter those things, you enter that, you defend the truth, but you better proclaim the glory of Christ. You better enter and interact in that discussion or debate in a way that honors the glory of Christ. We are saved, we are set apart, we are chosen, we are called, we are purchased and possessed by God so that we proclaim the excellency of Christ. Finally, then, let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 and see the persuasion of the redeemed. We've seen the position of the redeemed, the proclamation of the redeemed, and now the persuasion of the redeemed. Peter continues on, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, this seems quite simple, I think, on the surface, and it just kind of continues this stacking of the blessings of the people of God, one on top of the other. I think there are some, some glorious truths to see. There's really the two persuasions, the two reasons that we see here. Verse 10, he begins by saying, You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You can turn back with me if you would like to follow along to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, I want to look at verses 35 through 38 to consider a little bit of a related idea to this idea of once not being a people, but now being the people of God and how that pertains to Christ. Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. You see the compassion of Christ in this? That he looked at these people and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. People without a leader or a protector. People without a hope. And what was his response but to tell his disciples that there is a plentiful harvest there are sheep out there who need to be drawn into the great shepherd. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So you, God's people, beseech the Lord for workers to send out into the harvest. It's a great compassion of Christ. And we were like those people who were without a shepherd before we were brought to Christ. We were not a people. Now we're the people of God. Formerly, we were individuals pursuing our own lust, 
our own desires, our own personal agendas and the things which pleased us. But now in Christ, we are a people. We are sheep with a shepherd. We are in the fence, in the sheepfold of the good shepherd. He calls us. We know his voice. What a kindness of the Lord and how that should drive us to proclaim the excellencies and the glory of Christ. Peter then also says that we were those who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's the Lord's purpose in placing his mercy upon us? Paul tells us in Romans 9 verse 23, so that the Lord makes known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. What is the purpose of God's mercy placed upon us? It is to glorify himself by making us to be vessels of mercy. The Lord glorifies himself by placing his mercy upon us and saving us from our sin. If you reject God's mercy outright, or by somehow trying to earn his mercy or merit your way into his favor, you rob God of his glory in placing his mercy and love upon you. Grace is a free gift. Mercy is an undeserved, unearned compassion of the Lord on the people that he has chosen for himself. Calvin said that there's no other reason why the Lord counts us his people except that he has mercy on us and graciously adopts us. There's no reason for the Lord to be merciful. There's no reason for the Lord to adopt us and call us his own, but in his kindness and in his compassion, he does. Dear friends, that should fill our hearts. That should overflow in our lives and lead us, as we saw in verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of that Savior. So for all of the Lord's goodness and for all of his mercy, saints, how do you respond? He's chosen you from eternity past. He's called you to be a royal priesthood to jointly rule with Christ, and he has set you apart to be a holy nation, a holy people who are his possession. How do you respond? I think in the text we see that there are really two responses. The idea of being a priesthood, we give ourselves as living sacrifices. Our spiritual service of worship that is acceptable to God is that we lay down our lives upon the altar of God Say, Lord, our lives are in your hands. You do with us what you will. All I desire to do is glorify your great name. Because of the Lord's great mercy, give him your life as a living sacrifice. But even more closely to our text, we, we see the direct command that we respond to this great mercy by proclaiming his excellency and his glory. We respond to God's kindness to us by proclaiming that kindness to others and living lives that line up with that proclamation. When you consider the overwhelming grace of the Lord, it becomes clear that no amount 
of obedience. No amount of self-sacrifice is sufficient or what he requires. What we must give, what we must respond with is a heart that loves our Savior. A heart that is filled up with and overflowing with love for the great God who has saved us and called us out of darkness to his marvelous light. But it's out of the overflow of the heart that we live. We live lives that line up with the truth and the commands of his word. Our love reveals itself in a life of worship and obedience. We're saved so that we proclaim the glory and the gospel of Christ. May we understand these eternal blessings of God for his people. Great blessing, blessing of eternal life eternal redemption. May we understand these blessings, friends, and may we use our lips, our mouths, that which we proclaim, and may we use our lives to showcase the glory and the excellencies of our Savior. May we walk by the Spirit so that we don't carry out the desires of the flesh, so that our lives are pleasing and acceptable to the God who has called us from darkness to his marvelous light. Let's pray.